Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. From the mid-1940s through the 1950s, painters in New York imbued their work with a heady new confidence, scale, and energy. Before and during World War II, European emigres poured into New York, including artists Max Ernst, Fernand Léger, Piet Mondrian, and the writer and surrealist leader André Breton. Their influence led to the exploration of biomorphic forms, archaic themes, and accidental processes designed to unleash the unconscious, like dripping and scraping. It is in the large canvases of the 1950s, by Jackson Pollock and others, that what one critic called the triumph of American painting can really be felt. These paintings increased ambition and introduced new techniques, Pollock's rhythmic pours and drips, Clifford Still's dry palette knifing, Newman's masking-taped zips, Franz Klein's chiseled gestures, and Joan Mitchell's flurries of strokes. This generation of artists revealed new horizons in the practice of painting and the experience of viewing. As part of the series Celebrating the East Building, 20th Century Art, senior lecturer David Gariff explores the triumph of American painting in post-war America. This lecture was presented on August 14, 2018, at the National Gallery of Art. Today's topic is um, abstract expressionism, or the New York School. Uh, I didn't introduce myself. For those of you who are new, my name is David Gariff. I'm a senior lecturer here. And we're working our way through the permanent collection in the East Building. And now we are on the upper level. <clears throat> and we're ready to talk about one of the most important uh, and one of the most beautiful rooms in the reinstallation, which is the room now devoted to the New York School or to abstract expressionism. This is, of course, one of our uh, most important paintings from this period. This is Jackson Pollock's number one, 1950, that subtitle Lavender Mist uh, from 1950. Currently, this is in another location because it's part of a different exhibition that, in the galleries that I'll talk about when we get there. So here it is again with one of our beautiful wall texts um, <clears throat> that lets you know what you're going to see once you enter this room. So this is now the room devoted to abstract expressionism, the New York School. Although I should tell you the way you're seeing it here in these, this photograph, which was from a while back, it's, it's changed a fair amount now. A lot of paintings have moved around, gone other places, and been substituted. So it's not exactly like what you see uh, here. There's a great David Smith sculpture here. One of the most beautiful, <clears throat> although now it's, it's not present anymore because we've moved out some paintings. But this relationship is one of the most beautiful. Yeah. So again, you know, when a curator installs, and you know, he doesn't just throw the stuff up willy-nilly, uh, <clears throat> but he's hoping that you're going to see certain comparisons and juxtapositions. So it's very carefully, it has to be very carefully orchestrated when you curate, install an exhibition, or reinstall this collection. So this is a beautiful uh, relationship there between the Franz Klein and the David Smith. Another David Smith looking deeper into the space. There are some, again, not everything can be sort of tightly scripted. 
So for example, Giacometti is in this room. Technically, he's not certainly a part of the New York School. Uh, but certain considerations have to be made for the space that we have to um, uh, exhibit all the things that we need to exhibit. So Giacometti is in part in this room now. So let's, uh, I'm going to move through some of the information that we've already talked about rather quickly because it was about surrealism, et cetera. But we need to set the scene for the emergence of the New York School. So one of the things one should just mention is, well, what the heck was going on in America before the New York School uh, came to prominence, or at least while they were beginning to come to prominence? And really, there are two movements in American painting that were dominant at the time. One was what we call regionalism. And so here we have two works by Grant Wood. This is a work we own at the gallery. It's called Hain, Hain, 1939. And of course, the great American Gothic at the Art Institute of Chicago from 1930. So 30, 39, this is the decade of the 30s. And the regionalism was a very prominent um, movement style in American painting at this time. And of course, it's, as the name implies, it stressed regional traditions, especially traditions in the Midwest. So most of the artists, John Stuart Curry, uh, Grant Wood, um, were associated, Thomas Hart Benton, were associated with a certain regional part of the country, especially the Midwest. So it has a very American kind of feeling. The Grant Wood paintings, especially the American Gothic, kind of stresses this idea of our Puritan ethic and work values and work ethic and virtues. This was his sister and his dentist um, <laughs> who, who, posed, who posed for the painting. So if you want to get a kind of a severe looking guy, probably your dentist is a good, uh, is a good choice. Um, of course, this is the title American Gothic refers to the great northern tradition of painting in Europe, the Gothic and Northern Renaissance. You see the Gothic window here in the farmhouse. So all of this stuff stresses permanence, sort of good down-home American values, virtues, uh, work ethics, ethics, et cetera. The other side of regionalism, different than regionalism, was social realism. So this was more related to the cities, obviously, than to the sort of rural parts of the country. So it was very prominent in New York and other places. And the artists we associate with that tradition of social realism is Ben Sean. So this is a photograph by Ben Sean called Striking Miners, Scotts Run, West Virginia, 1935. So he took this photograph in 35, and then he used this photograph as the basis for this painting, which is called Scotts Run, West Virginia, 1937. This is at the Whitney, Whitney Museum of Art today. Uh, of course, unlike the regionalists, Ben Sean was very attuned to social, political problems, to the labor, rising labor movement, to the people who were disenfranchised, sort of living on the edges of American society, especially sensitive to the politics of the day, um, especially to leftist, leftist politics. So that's a, that's a counterbalance, you might say, to the regionalists. Among the most famous paintings by Ben Sean dealt with a very famous trial and execution. And this is the painting on the left called The Prisoners Sacco and Vanzetti from 1931-32. And then arguably what might be his most famous painting on the right, The Passion of Sacco and Vanzetti from 1931-32. He did a whole series of paintings 
that dealt with a very important um, arrest, trial, and execution of two Italian immigrants, uh, Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti. One was a shoemaker and the other one was a fish seller. They had emigrated from Italy. Uh, they had been accused of murdering two people, two men during an armed robbery in a, at a factory in Braintree, Massachusetts. This was in 1920. There were seven years of legal uh, battles uh, about the, um, the case. Evidence was handled in a very sloppy way in terms of forensics and all these other things. In any case, they were found guilty. They were executed on midnight of August 23, 1927. And this was a case that galvanized the country in part because it was such a clear case of anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, in this case, it was against Italians uh, who had emigrated to the country, who were considered at this time to be on, among the lowest of the low and the immigration scale. Both of these guys were Italian immigrants. They had arrived, they were poor, they couldn't find work. Uh, they did get involved with leftist politics uh, during this time. All of that counted against them. Um, and so there was a huge debate in the United States about this case. Uh, the painting on the right, this shows them when they were on their way to trial, when they're in the courtroom handcuffed together. This is actually based on a photograph as well. Um, but the more famous painting shows Sacco and Vanzetti after their execution. They're in their coffins in front of a, this neoclassical building, which is the courthouse. And on the porch, you see the judge in the trial, whose name, he's up here, uh, was Webster Thayer. Uh, there were three other people who were part of the sort of uh, advisory committee for this, for the convictions. One was Samuel Stratton. He was the president of MIT at the time. Another one was Lawrence Lowell, who was Harvard, the president of Harvard at the time. And another was a guy named Robert Grant, who was a retired judge. So basically, it was these four men who determined the fate. They were all openly hostile to leftist politics, to radicalism, and specifically to Italians. Uh, and at certain points in the trial, Thayer was heard to refer to the defendants as dagos, uh, anarchist bastards, and sons of bitches. So he seemed to have a little problem with Italians. Um, so this was well known that he was prejudiced. And so the conviction uh, came about, uh, and they were, as I said, uh, uh, executed despite the outcry on the part of the larger uh, uh, public. So here is Thayer in this neoclassical courthouse. And he's looking, if you notice here, he's looking at this uh, lamppost. But that lamppost is actually created as a fasce. It's a bundle of sticks. That's the symbol of fascism in Italy, going back to Roman times. So that's a symbol of fascism that he turns into a, to a light post. Um, there was, uh, after the conviction, there was a period of where the four individuals who had made the verdict, come up with the verdict, did agree to summarily sort of review their, the evidence. And they did the whole review in 10 days. And they upheld the uh, conviction. So they were executed. Um, in uh, 1977, uh, when um, Michael Dukakis was the governor of Massachusetts, um, on August 23rd, 1977, that was the 50th anniversary of the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti. 
and um, essentially Governor Dukakis issued a proclamation that exonerated them. Um, so 50 years later, um, they were exonerated and it, he attempted to remove the stigma and the disgrace that had been associated with their names. So this is very different than regionalism, obviously. Now I can move quickly here because we've seen a lot of this. Remember, in the uh, sort of group in America, the sort of indigenous, shall we say, American painters were regionalists, social realists, uh, but then you had this mass migration of Europeans into America, and so we saw this last time when we talked about Dada and Surrealism, the artist in exile photograph from the exhibition in 1942 at the Pierre Matisse Gallery, who Pierre Matisse had opened the gallery in New York, so he was also, he emigrated as well. So here's Mata, here's Breton, there's Mondrian, um, here's Tanguy, here's Max Ernst, uh, so it's, here's Leger. It's, it's almost like a complete brain drain of um, the great European artists coming now to America. Here's another photograph with Peggy Guggenheim. This is in her apartment. This is Peggy Guggenheim. Uh, here we saw this from, again, 1942. And everybody, again, this is Max Ernst. You can kind of, here's Breton, there's Leger. Um, you can go through Bernice Abbott down here. Um, we talked about surrealism then coming to be its last phase takes place in New York, you might say, because Breton comes and he's looking for new members. Um, and remember, the Surrealist Manifesto comes out in 1924, and it stresses the psychic, what Breton called psychic automatism or automatism which he said is in its pure state by which one proposes to express verbally by means of the written word or any other manner, the actual functioning of thought, dictated by thought in the absence of any control exercised by reason, exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern. So this was to be an automatic, unselfconscious, very, very spontaneous kind of idea. And here they all are again. Uh, we looked at this. You can hear Salvatore Dali in this one. Um, so all these guys are running around New York now, and um, most young American artists uh, had no idea of what was going on in Europe, and they, they may have heard of some of these guys, but they certainly had never talked to them or seen much of their work. And remember, there were a number of techniques and principles that under, underlied um, Surrealism, one was automatism, automatic drawings, where you just move with no premeditation. So here is Masson and Jean Arp uh, using automatic techniques that could not be rigidly controlled, the effects of chance, so frottage and grattage, scraping and rubbing. This is Max Ernst uh, here. Uh, remember oscillation, where Ernst would take a can of paint, tie it to a string, poke a hole in the bottom of the can of paint, and then just oscillate it over and around the surface. Decalcomania, where he would just put a, some uh, paint on a canvas, put another piece of canvas on top of it, and squish it together like a sandwich, and then peel it off, and then work into it that way. This is all decalcomania. So these are, the American painters had never heard of anything like this. Uh, certainly this wasn't coming from Thomas Hart Benton. Um, so then two particularly important figures, Mata, the Chilean artist, 
and Gorky, but Gorky had come to America early. He had come as early as, well, he'd come to New York in 26, but he'd come to America even before that. He was up in Boston. So Mata and Gorky, um, Gorky is very important uh, in part because he's also the artist who brought to the Americans modernist painting in Europe. He knew, he knew Cezanne's work, he knew Picasso's work, Brock's work, Matisse, Leger, Miro. He's really the conduit for bringing a lot of European art and ideas into America. And then Mata uh, as well. <clears throat> but of course, Mata was part of surrealism. And so with Mata and Gorky, you have, in some ways, the last phase of surrealism. As I said to you before, you can think of Gorky as either the last surrealist or the first abstract expressionist. The last phase of surrealism takes place in New York. Uh, so here is Ma uh, Gorky with André Breton. Uh, here, so the direct relationship. When Breton sees Gorky's work, he tells him he's a surrealist. Uh, Gorky's like, okay. Um, <clears throat> so Gorky becomes part of that group. Uh, here is Breton, this famous dinner I showed you, when he was about to go off on a kind of a tour to Haiti and other parts of the world. The New York group of surrealists and others threw a party for him. There's Max Ernst, there's Gorky back there. Here's uh, Duchamp, there's Mata. Um, so this, uh, here's the work of Mata and Gorky. Both of these paintings we have at the National Gallery. They're on view, they hang next to each other, as they should. Genesis on the left from 1942. One Year the Milkweed from 1944. Of course, this spontaneity in <clears throat> Gorky's work where he is scrubbing and pushing the paint with sponges, letting it drip and dribble down the, the easel, the flow of gravity. All of this was very new, very exciting. This notational kind of feeling where it's both painting and sort of writing or, or sort of uh, hieroglyphs, uh, that idea. This title, One Year the Milkweed, <clears throat> comes actually from Breton. So Breton saw the painting, he said, you yeah, know, you, you should call that One Year the Milkweed. Uh, and so it gets a very surrealist title, One Year the Milkweed. We can all think about that in different ways, uh, with different ways. Other paintings that Gorky has with titles like The Leaf of the Artichoke is an Owl. Uh, these are stock surrealist titles that are meant to have an open-ended kind of interpretation. Gorky befriends de Kooning here. So this was a very important relationship. Gorky, uh, de Kooning had tremendous love, really, admiration for Gorky. So here is Gorky in front of the painting we now have at the National Gallery. But this is not finished yet, so it does the, when the finished version that we have hanging in the East Building actually looks different than this. He made a lot of changes. That's organization, title of the painting. And then you can just see this kind of legacy conduit. Then we've got the New York School guys who now are gravitating around these surrealist emigres. So this very famous photograph from Life magazine in 1951 called The Irascibles. And all of the major protagonists, more or less, are here. There's Rothko, and you can go through and find there's de Kooning back there, Pollock. Can't really see. Uh, there's Pollock. Uh, there's Barnett Newman, etc. Now, so we now have these young New York artists who are very interested in all of these new ideas and techniques and abstraction and spontaneity and automatism, uh, probing and dredging the subconscious, Freudian and Jungian ideas, all of this coming through 
uh, the Surrealists. So they talk about this a lot. So most of these artists lived in an area in lower Manhattan. They came to be known, in fact, as the, the downtown group. So they lived uh, in an area bounded by 8th and 12th Street between 1st and 6th Avenue. And um, most of their studios were there. They were tight little, uh, well, they weren't so small. I mean, it was a pretty large group of people. Uh, their hangout was the Cedar Tavern, or bar, which was up near 11th Street. So they would all hang out at the Cedar Bar, and of course, this is legendary. Uh, they would talk about different ideas, and this led to the foundation or the founding of what they came to call the Art Club. So they would form a, a kind of a actual formal club uh, and not just have these informal discussions at the, at the bar because those very often got out of hand um, and people were clubbing each other over the head with beer bottles and things. Um, and the art club was located at 39 8th Street uh, and this became a more formal kind of organization and the first thing they decided was you know, we don't, nobody really knows us, and they don't know our art, they don't know what we're doing, we're virtually, you know, in the wilderness here, so we should have an exhibition. We should schedule an exhibition, get everybody together, everybody submit something, and that came to be known as the Ninth Street Exhibition. Now, this is a uh, photograph of where the, that exhibition took place today, which is to say, this is what the building is today. <laughs> um, in the time of this exhibition, it was an abandoned building. It had been um, marked for demolition. And so they went to the landlord of the building at this address, um, and they asked if it was 60 East 9th Street. So this is what it looks like today. Um, and they asked if they could just rent the building uh, for a couple of, uh, well, about three or four weeks. And um, so they got it for $70. Um, by the way, <laughs> I do my research. Um, today, to buy a studio apartment in this building, it's just under a half a million dollars uh, for, for a studio apartment. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and that's probably an older figure. So for $70, they got to rent the space because it was ultimately going to be torn down anyway. And Leo Castelli was a friend of all these artists. And he was somewhat well off, even at this time. So he donated, he threw in another $200 to try to make this space usable for an exhibition, paint the walls, plaster, kind of clean it up to make it presentable. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, and then they, the artist asked Costelli to install the show so there would not be, they trusted him that he wouldn't play favorites. So like he wouldn't put all the Jackson Pollocks in front and then somebody else in the corner. Um, <clears throat> so Costelli was asked to actually put the show together. He didn't choose the objects, the artist did, but he put it, uh, he put it together. Um, there were 64 artists. And before we go to talk about the show itself, let's go have a drink. Uh, <clears throat> uh, this is the, the famous Cedar Tavern uh, here and there which is now legendary. Of course, it no longer exists, although part of it now exists in Austin, Texas. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they bought the bar. When this was going to be demolished, somebody from Austin, they bought the bar and some of the fixtures and booths and installed them in a restaurant now in Austin, Texas. Um, so this is the outside. Here's the Kooning, 
with uh, John Chamberlain, the sculptor. I'm convinced here that Chamberlain is plastered. Uh, uh, I have no proof of this. Uh, but I think he's leaning over to the Cooney and saying, and another thing. Uh, and let me tell you about sculpture. Uh, this is Barnett Newman with uh, Clement Greenberg. There at the tavern. Here's Joan Mitchell, Norman Bloom, and Franz Klein. Uh, these guys were being kind of lionized by at least people in the village, so it was decided they were going to make a movie uh, about these guys. They were photographed a lot, and then they were going to make a movie. This, the movie maker here was a guy named Robert um, Snyder. That's him right there. So here at the table is Klein de Kooning. Um, this is um, Harold Rosenberg, the critic. This is Fairfield Porter. Um, so uh, he ended up making a movie about the... Uh, the uh, individuals, and this was at the uh, Cedar Tavern. So this is where they concocted, well, they didn't concoct it, they came up with the idea of let's form a group, the art club, and then let's have an exhibition. And here is the poster. Franz Klein volunteered to make the poster uh, for the show. These are all the artists in the show uh, here. Um, this, we've talked about the um, Armory Show in 1913, remember? Um, next to the Armory Show, certainly in the history of American painting in the 20th century, this is probably the most important exhibition that was held. This is comparable in terms of bringing to the attention of the public, not now the works of Europeans, as the Armory Show did, but the works of Americans who were now in New York and had gotten very little publicity up at this point in time. This is a landmark exhibition in the history of American art. Um, this was a study so Klein designed the poster, became replicated as a linoleum cut. Um, this is a study for a painting called Ninth Street uh, from 1951 that Franz Klein had in the exhibition. And from that study, ultimately, he painted a finished painting, which was not in the exhibition because he hadn't painted it yet. He had done the study. But I can show you what that painting looks like. It's right here. This was an exhibition in New York at the uh, Mnuchin Gallery. It has nothing to do with our Mnuchin uh, in DC. Um, um, this was at 40, this gallery is still there, obviously. It's at 45 East 78th Street. It's the Mnuchin Gallery. And this was an exhibition devoted to Franz Klein. It took place in 2008. And they hung that painting. They had that painting, which is in a private collection in New York. Here is the installation. So Costelli laid this out. Uh, here's Jackson Pollock. So there's the Klein study I just showed you. Uh, here, uh, Bradley Walker Tomlin, everybody who's anybody. You saw the list of people on the, um, on the poster. Uh, they did not sell one thing. Uh, the show opened on May 21st, uh, 1951. There were no sales, as far as we know. And really, the show was aimed not so much at the public as it was to the critics um, and to high-end gallery owners, because they hoped that these gallery owners would see this work and then take them on, bring them into their stable. But that didn't happen. Um, but the show was, was favorably reviewed, favorably seen, uh, sort of written about. One critic, um, Bruce uh, Altshuler, who was an art historian and a critic and a curator, said about the show, quote, it appeared as though a line had been crossed, a step into a larger art world whose future was bright with possibility. So in general, the public 
those critics who wrote about it were favorable, but nothing really came of it for the artists in the more practical sense. Here's different two more views of the installation. One of the people who photographed this installation was Aaron Siskin. These are his photographs uh, from 1951. So now let's start to go through some of the uh, protagonists that make up the New York School. And first and foremost, of course, as the great teacher inspiration uh, to these younger Americans is Hans Hoffmann. So here's a photograph of Hoffman in his studio on the left from 1957. This appeared in Life magazine. They did a spread on Hoffman. And another photograph of Hoffman from 1952 in his studio. You'll recall way back when we talked about Robert Henry, uh, I said that there are three great teachers in the history, teacher painters in the history of American painting who just sort of loom over everybody else. In the 18th century, it was Benjamin West. In the 19th, late 19th, early 20th century, it would be Robert Henry. And in the 20th century, it's this guy, Hans Hoffmann. Uh, he becomes one of the most important. He's a very important painter, but in some ways, he might even be more important as a teacher. Almost every young American abstract expressionist, if they didn't literally study with Hans Hoffmann, they knew him, they talked with him, he was, they were frequent visitors to his studio. So he brings to America, because he's not American, he was born in Germany, and he had had an art school in Munich before he decided to leave Germany. Um, he had been teaching in Germany starting in 1915, so he already was an accomplished teacher. He comes to New York and opens up an art school. He actually has two locations. Uh, one is in Provincetown, uh, Massachusetts. The other one is in New York City. Um, and he, first of all, introduces these Americans to all kinds of things they had no, no knowledge of, most especially Kandinsky, uh, the abstraction of Kandinsky, improvisational work, what Kandinsky was doing, this relationship, this synesthetic relationship of, of color and music, abstraction. He, Hoffman knew all about this. He taught that. He knew most of those artists. So he was bringing all this new information to um, these Americans, and he talked about abstraction. That's probably the biggest thing. He said uh, abstraction is the way that one really gets in touch with the deeper meaning of art and process, interaction of form and material. And he came up with a very famous um, sort of, uh, it's not a slogan, but principle uh, called push and pull, uh, that what a painting should have is push and pull. It should go back and come forward. It should, have a, it should have a kind of tension between surface and space, color, uh, clearly demarcated forms, and more purely abstract forms. So all of this is very exciting uh, to these young Americans. Now here is um, Hoffman. This photograph is in, well, in fact, both of these are in his Provincetown studio, uh, his, uh, his school, I should say. So here's Hoffman with his students in Provincetown. And um, this is uh, same thing, Provincetown, different class. Uh, I'm going to digress here for a moment, because it's, it's interesting, just as a sidelight. You see this young kid here? Anybody know who that might be? No, no, no. It's a tough question. <laughs> Okay, no, and I don't think anybody would know who this guy is. Um, but 
uh, this guy is Robert De Niro Sr., uh, who is the father of the actor Robert De Niro Jr. Um, Robert De Niro Sr. is a very important part of the New York school. Uh, he was a painter. He was an abstract painter. He studies with both Hans Hoffman, and then he studies. I mentioned Hoffman as a great, great teacher, and no question. And I would put him as the probably the more important of the at this period. But there is one other guy that has to be mentioned, and that's Josef Albers. Uh, Albers was presenting. He also had come from Germany, but he had not come to New York. He had gone to Black Mountain College. He had been asked to create that education art education program in North Carolina, and. Here is Albers with a class of students. Of course, you couldn't have two different guys. You know, Albers is the big square guy, you know, with the color, uh, and Hoffman's throwing paint around. So you have a beautiful kind of dichotomy here for students. They could look at Albers, the theory of color, and all the things he made students do, and they could look at Hoffman. And um, both Hoffman and Albers had great respect for each other. So uh, Albers is at Black Mountain from 1933 to 1949. And so here he is with a class. And here he is with Robert De Niro Sr. That is Robert De Niro's father, who studies both with Hans Hoffman, and then he studies with uh, Joseph Albers. So let's take a little trip down through the De Niro family album. <laughs> This is uh, Robert De Niro Jr.'s father. So this is the painter, Robert De Niro Sr. Uh, here, this is a photograph from 1940. And this is Virginia Admiral, who is another very important New York school painter. They met at Hans Hoffman's uh, class at his studio, at his school in New York. They fell in love. They got married uh, in 1942. And they had a little baby. Uh, <laughs> That is Robert De Niro Sr., a junior. Uh, so that's his father and his mother. They were both very important painters in New York at this time. Uh, Victoria Admiral and Robert De Niro Sr. Um, they separated when uh, Robert De Niro Jr. was about two years old. His parents separated. Uh, and basically, his mother raised him. But his father was very present. Uh, the, the separation was because Robert De Niro Sr. realized at a certain point that he was, he was gay. And at that point, he decided to, he didn't abandon the family so much as he felt he couldn't live that life anymore. But he, he moved very close by to Virginia Admiral and continued to be a big part of the family life. Here he is. That's Robert De Niro Jr. So this is father and son. And here they are, father, mother, and son um, in 1990. And remember, they met at Hans Hoffman's studio at a school. Robert De Niro Jr.'s godfather is Hans Hoffman. Um, his, his parents asked Hoffman to be the godfather. This is a work by Virginia Admiral that's at, the, at MoMA in New York from 1942. It's called Composition. This is Robert De Niro Sr. This is a work at the Hirshhorn, a portrait of Mrs. Z, 1959. Joseph Hirshhorn was a big admirer of Robert De Niro Sr. The Hirshhorn has about seven paintings by Robert De Niro Sr. Um, he supported him and was very much vocal in sort of trying to promote his uh, career. If you remember back here, 
he's in this exhibition. He's included in this exhibition. It's interesting here, they misspell Lee Krasner. Uh, she only has one S, not two. Um, so De Niro was very, senior, was very much a part of this uh, time and this movement. Uh, and especially, as I said, one of his major patrons at the time was Joseph Hirschhorn. But, so that was our little De Niro digression. Um, back to Hans Hoffman. We have one of the great Hans Hoffmans at the National Gallery. It's this painting on the right. This is called Autumn Gold from 1957. This is called Fantasia on the left from 1943. This is what Hoffman sort of meant between push and pull, where you have these encrusted surfaces, but you have this tension between a kind of, uh, first of all, these are saturated paintings. They're thickly encrusted. They have this sort of beautiful palette knife work as well as thick brush work. He certainly, again, is aware of color theory and color relationships. Uh, again, Hoffman went through a phase where he was very influenced by Matisse uh, early on. So these guys, he knows all these guys, Picasso, Matisse, et cetera. Um, here you see him dribbling the paint. And that's something that uh, Jackson Pollock would pay a lot of attention to when he saw this work. So. Hoffman is very important. He opens up the eyes to all of these young Americans who had learned certainly things from the Surrealists, but now they were getting an even more direct kind of understanding of European modernism, and most especially abstraction, and emphasizing process, the act of painting process. And that brings us to Pollock. Um, so here we have famous quote by Willem de Kooning, every so often a painter has to destroy painting. Cezanne did it, Picasso did it with cubism, then Pollock did it. He busted our idea of a picture all to hell. Then there could be new painting again. So that's true. Pollock is a pivotal figure. He totally changes the nature and way that artists came to think about painting. Um, there's no question about his importance in this, in this regard especially with this group of paintings, the so-called drip paintings, that are executed within a pretty short period of time, 1947 to the early 50s. He, people think he did that through his entire career. That was a phase of his career. He eventually went back to working with the brush. But he, he shatters the idea, one of the first great contributions is to shatter the idea of working on an easel. As soon as you have an easel, you have direction. You have top, bottom, left, right, center. And that immediately makes you think about things in a particularly formal way. By taking the canvas off the easel and putting it on the floor and allowing him to work around it from all four sides, he shatters that particular concept of easel painting that had been around for centuries, of course. He stresses process. He stresses uh, abstraction. All of these things are important, among, among other things. He's not from the East. He's from the West, from Wyoming. Cody, Wyoming. Goes to school in Arizona and California. Uh, he gets kicked out of school. He went to Emanuel Arts High School in Los Angeles, but he got kicked out because he was sort of a delinquent. <laughs> um, and then he comes at the age of 18, 1930. He comes to New York. His brother, who was also a painter, had already come to New York. They both study at the Art Students League. And the artist they study with is not uh, Hans Hoffman. Uh, they study with Thomas Hart Benton, so the American regionalist. Um, and we'll come back to him in a second. 
Here is Pollock with Lee Krasner in this, his studio. This is in 1949. Of course, they'll marry in 1945. Um, Pollock's uh, imagery and inspiration comes from a whole wealth of, of places. Coming from the West, especially Arizona, he knew Navajo sand painting, this idea of taking the color of sand in your hand and throwing it down onto the, um, onto the surface. Uh, he was interested, he was in Jungian, all these guys were in analysis. Um, and either they with a, were with a Freudian or they were with a Jungian. Uh, and Pollock was with a Jungian analyst. So this idea of symbol, icon, myth, uh, all this is very important to Pollock. Um, very important were the Mexican painters, uh, the great muralists, um, Orozco, Rivera, and uh, Rivera, and Siqueiros. He will actually assist uh, David Siqueiros on a large um, mural program. So he's looking and sort of absorbing a lot of different um, influences. And that brings us to a very, very, very special moment here at the National Gallery, which is the fact that we have temporarily this great painting here at the gallery. This is not at the National Gallery. This is where it's normally seen. This is the University of Iowa. And the University of Iowa has the great Jackson Pollock mural. But uh, it is now touring the country. And currently, it's here at the National Gallery. And one of the reasons it's touring is because in 2008, if you'll recall, um, there was flooding uh, in uh, Iowa. It was flooding everywhere in the Midwest. Iowa was particularly hard hit. And the museum at the University of Iowa was, was damaged. It had a lot of water damage. So they were concerned about a lot of the works of art. So they decided to get this out of the museum. And they, it had needed some re restoration and conservation anyway. So they sent it to the Getty Restoration Center in Los Angeles. And a lot of things were done to it. It had been sagging in the center, uh, a lot of different problems. It had old varnish, et cetera. So all of that was cleaned up and made perfectly sort of beautiful again. And then it was decided to not bring it back to Iowa until things really got stable. So it's been sent out. And currently, we have it uh, here. Uh, I'll come to that in a second. Uh, this is, I mean, there are so many legends about this painting. And a lot of it is not true that, that Pollock painted it like in one day. He was just going nuts. And uh, what is true is that he had a real block when this painting was stretched. And he looked at that white surface. He got frightened. Uh, what am I going to do on this uh, surface? And so for days and weeks, he just stared at this thing. And he started panicking. And then he seemed to just have the block seem to dissipate. And he, he started working. But this painting is a, um, a reflection of many, many influences. So the first one is definitely it's a reflection of the Mexican muralists in its scale. It's the largest Jackson Pollock painting ever painted. So this is the great Orozco mural that's at Dartmouth College. It's in their library, painted from 1932 to 1934. It's called The Epic of American Civilization. Pollock admired the Mexican muralists, and there were plenty of murals to be seen by all three of them, Siqueiros, Rivera, and um, Orozco. Pollock had worked with Thomas Hart Benton and this is Benton's great mural that's today at the Met. 
Um, it was removed from its original location called America Today from 1930 to 31. It's 10 panels, and it's this panoramic view of American life in the 1920s. It takes up this entire room on the top, as you can see. Eight of the panels deal life with life in different regions of America. So there's a panel devoted to the South, the Midwest, the West, and New York. Um, this relationship is particularly important because when you look at the mural and then you look at the work of Thomas Hart Benton, one of the things that Pollock was certainly channeling from Benton, even if it wasn't figuration, it was the vestige of figuration, that these are sort of human or human forms and that there is this movement across the surface. This painting by Benton was, there's, of course, Pollock knew this very well because in fact, Benton asked him to model for a number of the figures. Pollock modeled for this guy here, one of the Stokers, and for a number of the other figures. So as a student of Benton's, Benton asked a number of his students if they would model for the figures in this painting, and, and Pollock was among them. Here is Pollock confronting the empty canvas. So this is, the, this is it installed here at the National Gallery. I'll show you a better picture of that in a second. Um, this is a very famous kind of um, legend, but it, in this case, there is truth to it where Pollock was just kind of paralyzed. Uh, he had never attempted to work on anything this large. And of course, this was a commission from Peggy Guggenheim. So um, Pollock had been in an exhibition at Guggenheim's gallery. Remember the art of this century? We talked about that gallery. And he had had a painting in that exhibition. And um, it was a juried show. And among the jurors for that exhibition at Peggy Guggenheim's gallery were Mondrian and Marcel Duchamp. They were both in New York at this time. This was 1943. So they had selected Pollock's work. And then they went to Guggenheim and they said, oh, this, you, know, you should look at this kid. He's really good. And uh, so then she got interested in Pollock. She gave him an, a one-person exhibition. And then she asked him, she commissioned him to paint a painting, a big, long painting for her apartment in New York in her hallway. So it was going to be very narrow, uh, uh, her hallway in her apartment, which was at uh, East 61st Street. She left the subject up to Pollock, paint whatever you want, but it's got to be big, uh, and it's got to cover this wall. So that's, that was the, uh, the commission. Pollock mentioned uh, later, um, he, he mentioned about this desire that he had to paint large scale. He said, quote, I intend to paint large movable pictures which will function between the easel and a mural. I have set a precedent in this genre in a large painting for Miss Peggy Guggenheim which was installed in her house. I believe the easel picture to be a dying form and the tendency of modern feeling is towards the wall picture or mural. So he was wanting to compete against the great Mexican muralists. What's interesting is that Duchamp suggested to Pollock and to Guggenheim that he not paint it on the wall, uh, that he paint it on canvas so it could be moved and they wouldn't have to destroy it or something like that. So that was a good suggestion from Marcel Duchamp that he not paint it on the wall as a true mural, but that he stretch a canvas that size. There is another myth about this, and the myth is that when, of course, Pollock painted this in his home, which was his studio at the time. He didn't really have a formal studio. He had to knock out a wall in his apartment to paint the work. That's true. So he knocked out a wall to fit it in. 
And then the story that's not true is that once he painted it, took it off the stretcher, rolled it up, and brought it to, the, to Guggenheim's apartment, and they unrolled it, it was eight inches too long. That's not true. Because <laughs> the story is that then Duchamp suggested, as a, as a true Dada artist, let's just cut it. <laughs> let's just snip eight inches off. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm sure he would have done that. But that, that's not true. And one of the reasons we know that is because during this conservation at the Getty, this part of the painting, was the edge was looked at very, very carefully. And there's no indication at all that this canvas had ever been cut. So it was, it was the proper size. This is the confrontation with the void here. You know, if you watch artists paint, I mean, I know many and have worked with and written about many contemporary painters, been in their studios. And this thing about the blank surface, it's for a writer, too. But today, we don't work with a typewriter and paper. Um, <clears throat> but when you're confronted with that blank canvas, especially on this scale, um, making that first mark is terrifying. You know, what, where am I going to put the first mark? You often see artists, they, put their, they rub their hands over it. <laughs> you know, like, OK, this is what I'm going to paint. <laughs> but I really have no idea how I'm going to start. Uh, um, and that was true with Pollock. Uh, he was definitely paralyzed about starting. But then he did break through. But he did not paint this in one day, which is what you sometimes read. And we know that really from his brother's accounts of having watched his brother work. And he probably painted over a summer. So it was probably over like a two to three month um, uh, period. This is where it's installed now. I hope you've all seen it. You really need to take advantage of its presence here. And there it is in a little better photograph. So a lot's been written about um, what was the influence here? What was Pollock thinking about? There is a very famous quote where Pollock talked about, I guess we might call it the subject matter, but that's sort of stretching it. He, he said, when somebody said, well, what, what is this about? What are you trying to show us? He said, quote, it was a stampede of every animal in the American West, cows and horses and antelopes and buffaloes. Everything is charging across that goddamn surface. <laughs> uh, so he was thinking of the regionalists. He was thinking of Benton. He was thinking of where he had been born and raised in the West, in Arizona, in um, California, in Wyoming, et cetera. But of course, he translates it all into these incredible abstracted, but these beautiful licorice forms are very much like Benton. Benton's figures always look like they're blowing in the wind. You know, they're very tall, and they, they have this kind of serpentine movement. And I think that's probably uh, uh, relevant here. Of course, this is about 8 by 20 feet. So it's 8 feet high, 20 feet long. And um, again, uh, he, he talks about it uh, so we can get direct information. Pollock said, quote, um, with no strings as to what or how I painted, because Guggenheim said, I don't care what the subject is. With no strings as to what or how I painted, I'm going to paint it in oil on canvas. They are giving me a show, November 16th, and I want to have the painting finished for the show. I've had to tear out the partition between the front and middle room in my apartment to get the damn thing up. I have it stretched now. It looks pretty big. <laughs> but exciting as all hell. So he's both really excited, but he's sort of frightened as, uh, as well. Um, 
I told you about his desire to sort of begin to paint this mural painting. When he finished this painting, Clement Greenberg saw it. And Greenberg uh, uttered a pretty famous quote now. He said, Greenberg said, quote, I took one look at it, and I thought, now that's great art. And I knew Jackson was the greatest painter this country had produced. Um, so of course, this, was, this did lead Greenberg to become the great promoter, guru, of Pollock. Eventually, that would end. He would move away from Pollock to Clifford Still. And this would be part of the decline of Pollock in his uh, physical and mental state. Certainly when Greenberg sort of says, OK, no, I don't think Pollock, I think Clifford Still is more important now. <laughs> when that happened, that was a great trauma for, for Pollock. Uh, but we'll come to that a little bit uh, later. The interesting thing about the painting also is that you think, like when we come in here, you think you should stay back and look at it, right? That it needs, like it's a billboard or something, you need to stand back. But remember where it was going to be. It was going to be in a narrow hallway. So clearly, he wanted it to be seen up close. So when you go to see it, don't just stand in the back. Get up and close, and you'll really see why it's so, it's so dynamic. This is the first time this painting has ever been in Washington, DC. It almost never travels. <clears throat> Pollock now is starting to, uh, shall we say, catch fire. And I'm not going to talk about all of Pollock's career, because we don't have, oh my god, we really don't have time. Um, but this is the famous spread in Life magazine in April of 1949, where they had him stand in front of one of his paintings that's a big mural length that's today at the Tate in London. And the article was about, the article was titled, Jackson Pollock, Is He the Greatest Living Painter in the United States? So that begins the myth of Pollock now and begins his career and everybody's thinking and looking at him. Um, and uh, here is the painting at the Tate today that he was photographed in front of. So there it is there. And there it is at the Tate in London. It's called Summertime, number 9A, from 1948. Uh, writing about this picture and sort of explaining it, he said, uh, when I asked that it was, quote, he said, quote, the modern artist is working and expressing an inner world. In other words, expressing the energy, the motion, and other inner forces. Um, again, this is not unlike the mural. It suggests a kind of a freeze with kind of a figurative formal elements. Pollock often says, my art isn't just totally abstract. It can be representationally abstract or abstractly representational. Of course, these are the famous photographs by uh, the photographer Hans Namath, who in 1950 asked if he could come to Pollock's studio and photograph him at work. And so this shows us now all of the innovations of Pollock. First of all, he's off the easel. He's on the floor. Um, these are not pre-stretched uh, canvases. He unrolls. Here's the roll right here. So there it is. He just kicks open a roll, lets it roll across his studio floor, like from where I am to that wall. Just lets it roll off. And then he starts to work. He can attack the painting from all four sides. He now uses not traditional, well, he does use traditional brushes, but he uses anything that can somehow transfer the paint in a kinetic way. So it could be a brush, a stick, a trowel, 
a turkey baster, uh, anything that he can begin to kinetically sort of work with. He works all the way around the picture. Uh, he steps in his painting. A lot of Pollocks have footprints when you look at them. Uh, he was almost always smoking, so his ash or cigarette butt might fall in the painting. A lot of Pollock paintings have cigarette butts in them and things like that. So that was fine. It's all part of the process. Um, he works and he layers the paint. Uh, so the, again, this is it's not what you think. It's not very easy to make these things work. And even Pollock said, you know, I throw a lot of this stuff away. He would work on many canvases at once. So the idea, again, that this is like I'm doing this in one kind of sitting is not true. He would work on a canvas, get it to a certain completion, certain state of finish, tack it up on his wall, live with it, look at it. Then he might bring it back down on the floor and continue to paint. This idea of throwing the paint, dribbling the paint from a distance, from high up down, is again, certainly it does seem to relate to Navajo sand painting, taking the pigment, the sand in your hand, and throwing it down um, like this. All kinds of tools. These are real tools. This is if you go to his studio, you can see here's the great turkey baster, and another one here. Um, and that begins to create this incredible weave effect. This is our painting, Lavender Mist, number one, number one, 1950, subtitle Lavender Mist. Remember, Breton had titled a Gorky painting, One Year the Milkweed. Um, Greenberg titled this painting. It has no lavender in it. Um, but Greenberg said, you should call it Lavender Mist. And so Pollock did. Um, it, it's. These paintings are really, uh, they're something new. So we talked before about when things kind of lurch you forward and certain paintings, like de Kooning said, de Kooning is, uh, Pollock is definitely the icebreaker. That's another phrase de Kooning used. He really moves painting into a whole different place. That's not to say <laughs> that Pollock is a better painter than de Kooning. Personally, I don't think he is. I think the greatest American painter of the 20th century is Willem de Kooning. And I think in the 20th century, they're the three greatest painters are Picasso, Matisse, and de Kooning. That's a personal opinion. Um, but you can't take away from Pollock what he did in terms of changing the rules, the nature, opening up a freedom, either to explore the gesture or the field, all of these things. And in fact, when you see Pollock working, his approach to this, it relates to almost now, he's like a shaman. He's like a medicine man. He is performing a ritual. It has that aspect to it. The moment in this ritualistic act of painting is really more important in many ways than the, than the product. So here's Lavender Mist. Again, chance, intuition, control. Believe me, it's, he's thinking. He may be working quickly, but he's thinking. This painting is interesting because it's... Uh, signed, and it does have a signature down here, but then it's signed in another way, which is up here. And I'll show you a detail in a second. And he just put his hands into the paint. Just like in prehistoric art, where we have stencils where a prehistoric artist will put their hand and then blows like a stencil, you know? So there are his handprints. Here's, you can see this one a little bit. The other one is here. 
So if there's any other further evidence, again, of this idea that it's almost a ritual, like a, a shaman, that sort of emphasizes it. This is the, the project that ultimately really wreaks havoc with Pollock's psyche. And Namath filmed him, as we just saw, in his studio. But then Namath said, gee, you know, I, what I would really like to do is put a camera underneath glass and have you paint on the glass uh, and so people can see how these things are created. So part of a film, Namath took still photographs, but then he made a film. And part of the film sequence is this, which you see here in 1951. The film was titled Jackson Pollock, and it shows Pollock working. This is where Pollock begins to start to feel like he's a trained monkey, um, that he's performing sort of, yeah, well, like a monkey. And uh, this time he's, a, he, he's abusing alcohol. He's incredibly uh, unfit in many ways. This episode with Namath seems to have pushed him over the edge. And he started to doubt himself, doubt what he was doing, to feel like he was a fraud, like he was out there just performing you know, the way a trained animal might perform. This had a very bad impact on Pollock, and ultimately probably did lead to his demise in many ways. We also have this number seven from 1951. The title is number seven, 1951, <laughs> uh, from 1951. Uh, and um, every American, every abstract expressionist had a black and white face. It's interesting. They may have been very engaged in color, but then they seem to think, well, let's think about black and white. De Kooning's is probably the most important when de Kooning has this black and white phase. Certainly Franz Klein. Uh, Barnett Newman, uh, they all do. Um, they all have a black and white phase. And this is Pollock's black and white phase. And you can see this difference of the, this painting is interesting because this is a figure here that's kind of running. And then you've got these strong verticals that look almost vegetative, you know, like there's some kind of form, flower, or whatever. They also seem to echo in 1952, he paints the great painting called Blue Poles. That's in Australia where you have these blue poles that have these sort of pod-like shapes. But this also shows you something that's interesting, and that is this would have been part of a longer canvas, right, that he's working on. Only when he finishes does he think, OK, I'm going to crop it here. Um, so he could very well have decided this could have been a whole abstract part. This could have been a more figurative part. And then he decided to cut it in a way that allowed both parts to be uh, evident. So certainly Pollock is legendary. I don't think we need to sort of, I don't need to prove that. I mean, history has proven that. But let's look at some of the others, uh, other artists in the movement, and certainly Pollock's uh, uh, inspiration, supporter, caregiver <laughs> towards the end. But more importantly, another important artist of the New York School is Lee Krasner. So here she is in her studio on the right from 1938. This is not in our collection. This is at the National Museum of Women in the Arts, so it is in DC. It's called The Springs from 1964. It refers to the uh, village near East Hampton, Long Island, where both Krasner and Pollock lived and worked uh, in 19, starting in 1945. Um, Pollock dies in 1956. Of course, he's killed in a, in a car crash. Um, this, of course, leads also into the mythology of abstract expressionists. David Smith is killed in a car crash. Pollock is killed in a car crash. Um, Rothko commits suicide. 
So you have all of these horrific, uh, Gorky commits suicide. Uh, so you have all of these tragic endings for a number of these artists that further makes them into these romantic sort of tragic uh, artists, which is why it was very hard later, if you're Robert Rauschenberg <laughs> or Jasper Johns or something, to get out from under the shadow of these guys. And Rauschenberg is part of this group initially. He's at the Cedar Tavern, and he's there. He's young. Not only that, he's gay. And believe me, that it was easier to be a woman than it was to be gay around these guys. Uh, so all of that is something he's dealing with. And of course, <laughs> Rauschenberg is great. You, you got to love this guy. He's, he goes, so he goes to the tavern every night. These guys are getting in a fight. They're brawling. They're hitting each other. You know, they're talking about uh, adultery and this and that and everything. The women, blah, blah. They're hor horribly coarse and everything. And Rauschenberg sort of says, I got to find another bar. <laughs> you know, essentially what Rauschenberg realizes is, along with Jasper Johns, but it's more Rauschenberg, he realized, you know, I've got nothing in common with these guys. <laughs> uh, and, and as much as I like going and sitting there and hearing their stories and everything, I got to find another bar. Um, so uh, it was tough. That was tough. These guys cut a big swath uh, across American painting at this time. So Lee Krasner's art is, is again, beautifully powerful in its, uh, in its approach. It, it, it's not even so much more lyrical, although sometimes it does seem a little more lyrical. But she has her own beautiful touch and way of weaving these sort of ovoid forms and string forms through to create these really, all of these artists were concerned with what we now call all over painting. So filling the canvas left to right, top to bottom. So that there's no, once you take it off the easel, you don't have center, left, right, top, bottom. And all over painting is, is a part of abstract expressionism. This is one that we do have here at the gallery. Uh, this is Lee Krasner's Cobalt Night from 1962. This is a magnificent painting, really. Again, um, it's interesting <laughs> because in some ways, uh, although she's married to Pollock, uh, in some ways she actually owes more to Franz, uh, to, um, to Kooning uh, in terms of the gestural nature of when she paints. And that does lead us to my guy. Uh, there's no way we're going to do justice to Pollock and certainly no way we're going to do justice to de Kooning here, but this is de Kooning in his, uh, his loft studio, uh, 1937, West 22nd Street, and de Kooning in 1950. De Kooning and Pollock are, are, are titanic figures, certainly, in the movement. Uh, there was a kind of competition, maybe friendly competition, not always friendly when they were drunk. Um, they both were alcoholics. They both had problems. They abused alcohol. Um, in the case of de Kooning, I mean, he is fortunate. He does live a very, very long life. Alcohol doesn't kill him, but he suffers at the end from Alzheimer's. Um, I'm just, again, trying to stick to paintings you can see that we have. So here is Spike's Folly, number two. This is part of the Meyerhoff collection that we now uh, have at the gallery from 1960. This is Woman with a Hat from 1966. And this is an untitled work that we just acquired through the Corcoran collection. Untitled number four from 1979. Now notice these dates, 60, 66, 79. De Kooning's great period is the 50s, when he creates the Woman series. So those are the paintings that are the great iconic uh, de Kooning. So we have some marvelous pictures 
but they're, they're a little bit later than the period that he's most, for which he's most known and talked about. But certainly, if Pollock was the dripper, uh, and sometimes he was called, I think it was Time Magazine called him Jack the Dripper, uh, <clears throat> then what you have with de Kooning is the ultimate gestural painter. And we're very fortunate. We have a lot of videotape of de Kooning painting in his studios where you can see him at work. And he's the ultimate. He's not a dribbler. He's, he is gestural, but he's a scraper. Uh, he will put paint on, scrape it off, come back to it. The surface will look so tortured. And he'll start something, and then he'll realize, like he said at one time, it's so hard to get the knee right So in a figure. So you might see a painting that looks like it has seven knees, uh, where he kept changing his mind, or the mouth. The mouth was a real focal point for Pollock. I mean, for uh, de Kooning. He actually would cut mouths out of newspaper, out of magazine ads, and put them on the canvas, and then use that as a place to sort of go out from the mouth. Um, He's magnificent. Uh, I mean, de Kooning is magnificent. I don't know if you saw, it was several years, and now it's probably 10 years, 20 years, <laughs> the big retrospective that was at uh, MoMA, right? I think some of you may have seen it. I went into that exhibition and my knees buckled. I mean, I thought I was going to pass out. Um, to see his entire life, this, that was like every important painting, pretty much. To walk through that exhibition, I, I, I can't think of another experience I've had in a gallery that was more meaningful. I mean, I literally, I walked in and I felt my knees went to jelly. Um, so you should look at that catalog because it's, it's really something. So he's the real deal. Um, and you notice there's no uniform style among these artists. I mean, they have certain things in common all over, painting, gesture, feel, whatever. But they're also very individual. That gets us to Elaine de Kooning. Uh, Pollock was with Lee Krasner, of course. Uh, de Kooning, Willem de Kooning was with Elaine de Kooning. So here she is, photograph on the left from 1945, and on the right from 1980. She's born in Flatbush in New York. Um, her mother started to take her to museums when she was like four or five years old. Her mother was really her first teacher, taught her how to draw. She goes briefly to Hunter College, but she never graduates. She studies at two of the lesser schools in New York that a number of artists studied at. They're not that well known there. It's not like the Art Students League or things, Cooper Union. She studied at a school called the Leonardo da Vinci Art School, which a number of artists did at this time, and another one that was called the American Artist School. These are less well known today in New York City. She then became, because she was quite attractive, as you can see here on the left, she was often an artist's model. Um, she met Willem de Kooning in 1936. Uh, they had an incredibly long and contentious uh, relationship. Uh, they had an open marriage by choice. So they both were involved with numerous other individuals. They both struggled with alcoholism. Um, at a certain point, they separated for 20 years. 20 years, but they never divorced. They never divorced. And when de Kooning became ill later in life, uh, they were reunited. She came back, and they were reunited in 1976. And she stayed with him. She died, actually, eight years before he did. Um, in 19, uh, she, she's, she's fascinating. They're all fascinating. <laughs> um, but she's interesting because she chose to become, she's a gestural painter, but she chose to become a portraitist. Uh, something the abstract expressionists aren't known for, really, portraiture. And she said in 1959, talking about her portraits, which are almost exclusively of seated men, 
right? Not seated women. So she's the answer to her husband's women paintings. I'm going to do men. You did women, I'm going to do men. Uh, so she said, when I painted my seated men, I saw them as gyroscopes. I'm enthralled by the gesture of the silhouette, the instantaneous illumination that enables you to recognize your father or a friend three blocks away. So here's the portrait of Michael Sonnabend <laughs> here from 1951. And here's the portrait of a man named Al-Lazar, who was one of her uh, paramours. It's subtitled Man in a Hotel Room from 1954. A lot has been written about these portraits, um, especially in feminist art history, because she seems to be cutting across traditional ideas of the female form as an object of desire on the part of a male artist, uh, showing this male gaze, et cetera. But now she's flipped the equation. She's a female painting men. She doesn't paint them nude. But she does very often, they're aggressive, but it's interesting because they seem, to, they seem to have their own sexuality, but at the same time, she's kind of controlling the sexuality. Um, she spends a lot of time in the crotch um, uh, here, uh, and things like that. So she's really smart, and she's, it's, they're very, very um, in, important paintings, and they're different than the, her colleagues. She said about this idea of closing your legs, opening your legs. She said, um, some men sit all closed up, legs crossed, arms folded across the chest. Others are wide open. I was interested in the gesture of the body. So she brings an abstract expressionist gestural language to a more traditional realm of subject matter. This is, uh, we talked about him, Harold Rosenberg, the critic who was also one of her parables, <laughs> um, from 1956. And this is her husband. That's Willem de Kooning from 1952. These are both in the National Portrait Gallery here in DC. Um, there was a big show devoted to her portraits at the National Portrait Gallery. I'm going to mention that in, it was in um, 2015. Uh, so Rosenberg, of course, is along with uh, Leo Steinberg and Clement Greenberg. These are the three guys who are the, what do we say, philosophers <laughs> of abstract expressionism. Each one approaches the movement and writes about it differently. It's Rosenberg who coins the phrase action painters. That this is, and what he stresses is the act of painting. What Greenberg stresses is the purity of the painting, flatness, color. Uh, so there are going to be two different schools. And that's going to be important when we come back to talk about the, the Washington Color School. Because Greenberg will champion the DC artists, Morris Lewis, Clement um, um, Morris Lewis, Ken Nolan, all those guys. And Rosenberg will champion the pop artists. Uh, he'll go and they'll go and there'll be a fork in the road, critically speaking. These are magnificent. They're not small either. They're rather large. Here's a portrait of Fairfield Porter. She's painting everybody she knows as well. Some of these people she knew very well. Um, so this is Fairfield Porter from 1954. This is at the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City. And this is Robert De Niro Sr. from 1973. Again, she remarks about why she's painting men in the history of this. She says, quote, women painted women Vigi Lebrun, Mary Cassatt, and so forth. And I thought, men always painted the opposite sex, and I wanted to paint men as sex objects. 
So she goes on, and she's talking about now all the things that that entails, male privilege, the male gaze, sort of flipping the equation. Maybe her most famous portrait, but I don't think it's her best, but it's the most famous because of who was portrayed, is Kennedy. So in December of 1962, she's commissioned by the um, Harry S. Truman Library in Missouri to do a portrait for their library of uh, JFK. And this leads not to one portrait, but to dozens. Uh, works on paper and a number of painted portraits. Here she is on a ladder working on this full length. That's 11 feet. Um, that's today at the um, National Portrait Gallery. This is 1964, but the commission came about in 1962, and she was still uh, painting it. This is the, the one that's today at the National Portrait Gallery that's on view. Um, that's not the one that was for the library, which I think is one of the least interesting. This is much more interesting. Portrait of JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy from 1963. And here she is painting him. This was in his West Palm Beach sort of White House where he would uh, conduct business in the winter times. And the problem, in fact, the reason she got this commission in part was because Kennedy would not certainly just sit quietly for a portrait. There's no way he was going to sit quietly for two, three, five, ten hours. So they had to find a painter who could work fast because he was, she was going to just look at him doing his normal thing, <laughs> talking to people, signing things. you know. So he's not paying any attention to her. He's here seated. And she's trying to capture him as quickly as she can during these various sorts of, uh, of movements. And that was the perfect choice. She was the perfect choice for that uh, because she really could work very, very quickly. So there are, you can see all of these images. This is the one back here that is uh, this one. This is the one, if I'm not mistaken, that's at um, the library, the Truman Library. This is at the National Portrait Gallery. And then there are others that are at other collections. <laughs> this is uh, Bacchus Number no. 3 by Elaine de Kooning on the right from 1978. It's the first painting that she used acrylic paint as opposed to oil. Um, and what she did here was she was in Paris, and she was enthralled by this statue of the Triumph of Silenus by Jules Dalou from 1885 that's in the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. So this figure of Silenus is right here. So this actually starts in nature. It starts with a form that she abstracts, then the trees, the tree branches, the sky, and the figure uh, itself. Here's Franz Klein. Uh, another yet somebody, again, different, uh, Franz Klein, although he does return to painting in color in 1955, he's mainly known for his black and white gestural painters, paintings. Don't be fooled here. These are not black strokes on a white ground. He's painting both the black and the white. So sometimes the white is coming over the black. Sometimes the black is coming over the white. So people who reference Sumi calligraphy and things like that, Certainly he was aware of that, about mark making. But he's not working on the blank page and just putting down a, a sort of shape. He's working both ends of the surface, you shall, or both ends of the equation. He was born in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, goes to Boston University, goes off and studies 
in London. He dies young. He, he dies at his 50, he's 52 years old. He dies even younger than, no, Pollock was still younger, as I think about it. Um, he was, he, he was, a, he was the, the most um, jovial, <laughs> uh, shall we say, of, of the group. He held court at the Cedar Bar, and he was always there. And so he was always sort of talking and entertaining, et cetera. Coming from Pennsylvania, he was very much interested in all of the great forms that related to coal mining, bridges, girders, mines, industrial sites. And people are always tying his paintings to sort of abstracted ideas of these sort of industrial forms. This is one we own at the left, Foursquare. Well, actually, we own both of these, but one's at the Meyerhoffs. On the left is Foursquare from 1956. That's the one I showed you next to the David Smith, remember? Uh, it's this one here. And then Turbin, T-U-R-B-I-N, from 1959. Uh, here's what we're talking about. You can see the white is coming over the black. Uh, he's working both. They're really, really, I like Klein a lot. because I like the gestural guys, because they're gutsy, and they're right in your face. And you have to kind of really. Um, take it in and it really kind of, it's really coming right at you in some ways. The turban painting is interesting because of the title. The title is turban, T-U-R-B-I-N. And art historians have argued about what the heck is that? Is it a misspelling of turbine? Um, this painting we know was exhibited only one time and it was spelled that way in the catalog, T-U-R-B-I-N. So some art historians think it was just a misspelling. Uh, they didn't edit the catalog, <laughs> and that maybe it was supposed to be turbine, it was turban, and then everybody thought that was the name of the painting because everybody was going by the previous catalog. I don't think that's the case. Um, other theories, and this is where I come down, is that it probably relates to a um, silent film star uh, whose name was Turpin, Ben Turpin, T-U-R-P-I-N, who was a great silent film comedian in the 20s, along with Charlie Chaplin, Max Sennett, all those guys. Um, because we know that um, Klein loved those black and white silent movies. He loved Charlie Chaplin. In fact, a lot of these guys did. So they watched him uh, very often. This is Ben Turpin uh, here um, from 1920. He was most famous for being able to cross his eyes, um, <clears throat> like you see here. And he's sort of, I don't want to say he's an offshoot of Charlie Chaplin, but he's a sort of a competitor. But the reason I think it's probably Turpin is because of a photograph like this. Because what Klein used to do very often, and those of you of a certain age won't even know what I'm talking about, he would use an overhead projector. <laughs> uh, so he, he would do a, a quick ink sketch uh, with just these sort of movements. And then he'd put it on the overhead projector and project it large. And then he'd think about that as a larger painting. But I think if you were to just kind of squint and make this a bunch of black lines, Turpin was famous for these kinds of, you know, he's always very elastic. Um, and I think they may relate to, to that, that starting from nature, and then sort of like we just saw with Elaine de Kooning taking the Bacchus or the Silenus figure and going with it. I think maybe there's something to be said for that. You know, when you look at paintings like this, you have to be aware. They seem like, what can I say about it? But there's, there's so many different things. One of the things always is edge. 
Paintings like this, you have to be aware of edge tension. Is it compressing, uh, tension, compression? Is it, how does the artist think about the edge? Uh, does he think about it? Maybe he doesn't think about it, he doesn't care about it. Uh, all of that kind of stuff as well as, and of course what Klein is using is big, thick house painting brushes. So they're the big brushes. And he uses very often, in fact, not oil, but enamel and even house paint. Early on when he was so poor, he couldn't afford good paint, so he would use house paint to create these big. There are lots of stories about Klein and his sort of poverty uh, early on. So we bid fond farewell to Ben. Talking about edge tension, here's Clifford Still. His titles are just letters and numbers. It's like a catalog. So the painting on the left is PH115 um, from 1951. And the right, on the right is PH571 um, from 1951. Still is fascinating. Um, of course, this guy was maybe the most prolific of the group. Over a thousand paintings and twice that number of works on paper. As you may know, today there's an entire museum devoted to Clifford Still in Denver. And this was a huge debate because Still and his estate after he died, they were very protective of his work. They would not allow his work to be seen, to be exhibited. They would not allow it to be published or photographed. And not until he would be given some, somebody would be willing to build a museum just for all of his art. There were lots of contenders, but the restrictions and the ordinances and the expectations of the estate were so rigid that most institutions in various parts of the country just said, forget it. Denver didn't, and they built a magnificent museum, and it's all, it's almost like, it's almost overkill, like it's a temple to Clifford Still. Um, but it's a beautiful space, and so he's all, all of his work now is there, except for the things that were already in other collections. So we have these two Clifford Stills here at the National Gallery. I mentioned Greenberg kind of switching from Pollock to Still. Uh, eventually, what Greenberg seems to think about is the fact that the pure painters are not the gesture painters. They're not Pollock. They're not the Kooning. They're what we call sometimes field painters, the ones who work more on a flat field, certainly Rothko, uh, Newman. But for Greenberg, it was Clifford Still, who he felt had the best kind of synthesis uh, of this. Still is interesting. He's sort of, he, he did have a very high opinion of himself. There's no question of that. Um, and his paintings are somewhat hermetic in a certain way. They have feel, but they have these kind of crusted edges and surfaces. Things peek out. They're very interesting. They're very intriguing, the way he plays. They have a certain, in his mind, they had a certain spiritual, existential kind of quality, much like we saw with, uh, with Kandinsky. They're layered, and yet they're flat. These were things that Greenberg was particularly interested in. So these are two that we have. Then we have a different type of artist. Adolf Gottlieb on the left, pictograph from 1942, and Bradley Walker Tomlin, maneuver for position on the right from 1947. There is a whole subset of the abstract expressionists who were interested in pictographs, hieroglyphs, the idea of mark making, notation, um, looking like it's an alphabet or some kind of thing that's very personal. 
very often segregated in the case of Gottlieb into these little boxes. You'll see David Smith do this with sculpture. A lot of artists do it. Clearly here, in this case, especially of Gottlieb, he was really into Jung. So he's creating these mythic kind of iconic letters and characters that we can read in a number of different ways. These, he was interested in myth, myth-making, things like alchemy, uh, ruins, you know, the signs and forms, and all of these things that might have a kind of mystical uh, kind of uh, connotation to them. But he's, and of course, he's very interested, both of these guys, in Gorky. Uh, so Gorky's sort of visual writing sort of idea is important. And the other artist, very important to both, is Paul Clay, the Blue Rider. And in 1941, MoMA had a huge retrospective of Paul Clay. And we know all these guys went to that retrospective. So in 1941, they went to look at Paul Clay's work at the Museum of Modern Art. Tomlin, this is an interesting transitional work. It's just before he embraces total abstraction. One of his motifs was the eye. And this is one of the last times you'll see the eye. He's also, he was very interested in Gottlieb. You can see the relationship. He admired Gottlieb greatly. There are aspects of cubism, abstract expressionism, and um, surrealism, really, in, in works like this. Uh, he starts to move more and more, not for these blocky glyphs, but towards the idea of almost of writing, like he's, like he's writing. Uh, sometimes he'll scrape through the paint to make this kind of um, notation. You can see there's, there's all this variation, and yet they're a family. This is Ad Reinhardt, uh, untitled, and then it's subtitled, <laughs> Red and Gray on the left from 1950, and then untitled, <laughs> subtitled Yellow and White from 1950. Of course, Reinhardt has the greatest quote one of the greatest quotes in 20th century aesthetics, where he says, quote, art is art, and everything else is everything else. Um, now, that's actually very profound. Uh, and if, you have, uh, if we have trouble with understanding modern art, there it is. Art is art. In other words, art is about art. It's not about the war. It's not about politics. It's not about a still life. It's not about a horse. It's not about anything like that. It is about what makes art. Everything else is everything else. <laughs> uh, that's a really, I mean, it sounds funny, but it's actually quite profound. So eventually, of course, Reinhardt will move, as you may know, to the big black paintings. They're just all black. <laughs> uh, they're all black. Uh, so he's really pushing this idea that what the painting is about is that painting. That's what it's about. Uh, and so even though that had been dealt with in some ways by the Russians earlier in the, in the century, um, he's here, though, he's dealing with these relationships, horizontal, vertical. It's sort of like Mondrian drunk, uh, <laughs> uh, where he, he's, uh, except it's not just the primary colors. But it's like, you know, he can't have that real rigidity. rigidity. So things peel open. There's a lot of Clifford still in the edges here. The way things, the way he plays with edge tension is interesting. Where if it comes to the edge, if it doesn't come to the edge, you know, again, Mondrian, believe me, these guys looked at Mondrian. They may not have wanted to go down that road, but they're thinking about a lot of what Mondrian, it's reductive. Uh, this is painting is reductive. He's seeking certain stable relationships to the edge. 
so that you don't think you're going to go just flying out of the painting, that kind of thing. And there's a lot of push and pull. There's a lot of horizontal vertical uh, relationship, positive negative space, high contrast, low contrast. Every movement needs an egghead. Uh, that is the guy who's really so smart that he thinks he knows everything. And in fact, he does know everything. Uh, and that's Robert Motherwell, um, who is almost as important today as a writer of, about art, important books about data, et cetera. His, he's, a, he's a very eloquent writer. But he's part of the group. Here's Motherwell on the left. And of course, if we talk about Motherwell at the National Gallery, we talk about the Great Reconciliation Elegy that hangs in the East Building from 1978. Uh, Motherwell is interesting because in some ways he's both gestural and field. Uh, he has broad expanses of color, but he also paints. You can see dripping and figural or um, uh, gestural elements. So he kind of bridges the two ends. By the way, I'm holding back from this lecture a discussion of Rothko and Newman because they belong to the tower, and I'll come back to them in a different lecture. Um, so he is very much about, again, a certain kind of synthesis of these two ideas. He's also a reductive artist in many ways. He says, quote, that the heart of abstract art, quote, abstract art is, quote, stripped bare of other things in order to intensify it. It's rhythms, space intervals, color structure. Now, Reconciliation Elegy relates to a, one of probably the most important series by Motherwell that goes way back to the 60s. And it was called the Spanish Elegy series, where he was speaking to the tragedy of the Spanish Civil War. And he creates these forms that we have uh, here. Talking about that series, the Spanish Elegies, and what it meant, he said, quote, it, that it was his, quote, private insistence that a terrible death happened that should not be forgot. And then he goes on to say, but the pictures were also, quote, general metaphors of the contrast between life and death and their interrelation. So the black and white, these forms that often are sort of organic biomorphic forms that look like wombs, that look like sex organs, all of this stuff is, is relevant. About our picture, of course, He's said a few things in his notes, and one reference to what it was he was seeking in our painting, which is much later in the 70s, it was commissioned for the opening of the East Building. He said that, quote, it's the burden of an individual's life in the midst of the architectural splendor of this building. You're in the East Building, it's splendor. A building whose collections were initiated by the accumulated wealth of its wealthiest citizens. So he's making a contrast between the idea of the difficulty of life for all of us day to day. How do we reconcile that to the magnificence of this building and uh, the wealth of the building? Let me show you. Uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, Motherwell in his studio. I think it's 52. Yeah, 52 here on the left. Here he is with his studio assistants. I'm going to just show you the painting of our painting. He had two studio assistants. This is his studio in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. And what they're doing, here's the maquette, which I'll show you in a second. So this is the maquette of the painting. These guys now are putting a large piece of paper, and they're copying the maquette. They're transferring it to this paper with pencil. And then what they do is they poke 
holes like a fresco. They, they pounce. They prick holes through all of the lines, right? That gets rolled over the canvas. Then you pound what's called pouncing. You take this little charcoal bag, just like they did in the Renaissance, and you pounce it all over those holes so that when you lift off the paper, you've got a dotted line of the painting. But of course, Motherwell will depart from that very often. Here he is starting out. This is our picture in its process. He starts with some charcoal. His studio assistants took his favorite brushes and cut them because <laughs> uh, they had short handles and put them on the end of these long sticks uh, here. There's the maquette. That's the model they're following. But he feels totally free, of course, to uh, depart from that. Some color photographs. His assistants said, and they were interviewed about the process and everything, that he really, he may have looked at the, the, uh, the underdrawing but that he was very improvisational. He almost worked like a, a jazz musician. He would change things and, um, and change his mind as he went along. This painting has been in a number of locations. If you actually came to the gallery at its opening in 1978, this is where it was. This is not even here anymore. All this information, this is all gone. But above, it was hanging here. So this is where the mural is today by Pollock, right? Then it went here, <laughs> above the near the escalator. And today it's here, near the auditorium. And a little while ago, when we, well, when we were renovating the building, this, build, this painting had to come down. And it's huge. Um, so here are, here are our handlers taking it. To, actually, here they're putting it up, because these were photographs I was taking. Um, so they had to take it down, and now we're putting it back up. And now we're taking it down again. It's down again because of Rachel Whiteread. Uh, this area now, remember this area now is special exhibitions. So we can't have Robert Motherwell in her exhibition. Um, so for the largest painting, we have no compunctions about putting this thing up and taking it down. Uh, I would really be saying, do we really have to take yeah. it down? You know, can't we put a, like a sheet over it or something? Um, another note he makes, he made notations in a notebook about this painting, and he says it's comparable to what I just read, but this is a little different. There were just these notes. He said, quote, problem, in the midst of architectural grandeur, to strike a personal note, the note of the human presence of a 20th century solitary individual, that terrible burden, and somehow make it public. So that's just a note he had in his um, notebook. This is Grace Hardigan. So in her studio in 1958, we have Essex and Hester. That's up here on the right, subtitled Red from 1958. We get with Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell. Uh, we get into what we come to call, because they're younger, the second generation uh, abstract expressionist. She was born in Newark um, and then uh, moved to New York City in 1945. By 1957, she's considered the most important female abstract expressionist. She's featured in spreads in Life magazine and in Newsweek. 
Life magazine refers to her as, quote, the most celebrated of the young American women painters. Um, she marries, her second marriage, which uh, because of various things her husband did, uh, she needed, they needed to move to Baltimore. So then she goes from, from Newark to New York to Baltimore. In 1960, she stays in Baltimore um, until she dies in 2008. She was a teacher, but then she was the director of the uh, Hofberger Graduate School of Painting at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. This painting is a series called Place Paintings. People always wonder what that name is. Is it Shakespeare or something? Uh, Essex and Hester. It's actually a street coordinate in New York. It's where her loft apartment was in New York City. Uh, so she did a series of paintings. In fact, many of the abstract expressionist title paintings after locations. Street locations, the Hamptons, this, that, uh, is very common. And um, it's interesting because she painted this painting after she moved to the Hamptons. Yet she's painting this place back in New York City. And the reason she moved was because she wanted a more open kind of space than the crampedness. She was kind of getting claustrophobic in New York City. This is exactly what de Kooning did. De Kooning was in New York City, and then he finally said, I got to get out of here. Uh, and he went off to the Hamptons. De Kooning didn't drive. He didn't know how to drive. So these great stories of when he, people would take him out to the Hamptons, he would sit with the window rolled down like a dog, and he'd look out, <laughs> you know, and he'd look out like that. Remember, remember, de Kooning is Dutch. So his European thing was, he, he thought, like when he was interviewed about uh, America, he thought, I thought it was all like Hollywood. It was all bright sunshine and everything, because I was raised on watching movies in, in the Netherlands that were all American movies and things like that. In any case, uh, Hardigan is very important. She, again, owes a lot to Gorky. So this is a reference to her loft apartment address in New York City. And uh, these paintings may look simple, but again, there's different density of paint, different brushstroke. There's, there's calligraphy. Again, she was very influenced by Gorky. Gorky is very important to all these artists here. So this is a really wonderful painting to have. And she hangs now next to Joan Mitchell. This painting, I think, now is off view. Um, here's Joan Mitchell in her studio in Paris on the left from 1956. And this is our painting, Piano Mechanique, from 1958, with Hardigan, Helen Frankenthaler. And I'm going to come back to Helen Frankenthaler when we talk about the DC Color School. Um, and Krasner and de Kooning, Elaine de Kooning, these are the great ladies of, uh, of abstract expressionism. She's born in Chicago, uh, studies at the Art Institute, then comes to New York City. She enrolls at Hans Hoffman's uh, school in New York City. Um, she's influenced greatly by de Kooning, uh, the gestural work, but she begins to be very interested in nature. So a lot of these artists still are sort of evoking nature. She was r raised on Lake Michigan and she thinks a lot about water and reflection. And that kind of carries over into her work. But the big thing that is with Joan Mitchell is when she decides to leave America and really live in France. And here we have something very interesting, because Joan Mitchell is probably the most, most Frenchified abstract expressionist. And by that, I mean, when you look at a Joan Mitchell painting, you think French. You think Matisse. You think uh, Monet. You think of the great French tradition. And this gets us into something that's very interesting that's always interested me, and that is the number of Americans who chose to work in post-World War II Paris, not to be in New York. 
um, and how that affected their, their vocabulary. We think of this big demarcation. After the war, everybody goes to New York. So what happened in Paris? They just closed up shop. That's what we're going to talk about on Thursday, post-World War II Europe, what was going on. But a number of Americans, especially those who had served in the war on the GI Bill, they could live in Paris very cheaply, more cheaply than in New York. So you had a whole expatriate population that included Joan Mitchell uh, eventually. And they become part of what is the European equivalent of abstract expressionism, which has all these different names, art informal, informal art, tachism, touch. Uh, these are all French terms that were the equivalent for American abstract expressionism. So here is Salut Tom from 1979. This is huge. This is up at the moment. Um, it's four panels. She had gone to France first in 48, just after the war on a scholarship, came back to New York, became a very important part of this second generation of abstract expressionists. But there's a, always in her, you can, see, you can tell a mile away that it's Joan Mitchell because it's lush, it's light, it has this wonderful kind of evocation. It looks like Monet in many ways. And if that's not, if that, that's not just accidental, because when she moves in the 50s, she's still traveling to Paris. And then she moves there permanently in 59, and she settles in the house that Monet used to live in. <laughs> yeah, in, on the Seine at Vertuis. He, he had a house there before Giverny. She, she lives in that house and settles in that house. And so she's going out and painting the Seine. People talk about this painting. It has a very water lily-like feel to it. But people talk about, is it four separate scenes that she put together? Is it one panoramic scene? You can think about it, because there are four panels here. You can think about it in a lot of different ways. The reference in the title, Salut Tom, 1979, is to Thomas Hess, her friend, who was the uh, curator at uh, the Met and the editor of Art News. He died very suddenly and tragically. He had a heart attack at his desk at the Met at the age of 57 in 1978. Hess, along with Rosenberg, Greenberg, Steinberg, and all these other critics and curators, they were setting the tone about what American abstract expressionism was. She said about nature, much like Monet, she said, quote, I could never mirror nature. I would more like to paint what it leaves me with, the sort of impression it leaves me with. Now, the other painter, and then we're going to, believe me, we're going to end, um, who is part of this expatriate population, he's New York, well, he's from California, but then New York, and then he stays in Paris, is Sam Francis. We just took this painting down. Um, this is White Line from 1958. Sam Francis also stays in Paris after the war. Here he is with Joan Mitchell. This is Wallace Ting. He's a Chinese painter who's very important. Uh, this is from 1969, this photograph. So Francis is, again, a very important part of both He's really more French than American in the sense of he's more a part of art informal. Many of his paintings have white in the center so that everything spins off of the relationship to the blank white. And here are the ladies. And I want to end with giving you some reading. Not that I want you to read it, but I mean some bibliography. So here is Joan Mitchell. There is Helen Frankenthaler, Grace Hardigan and Helen Frankenthaler. This is in 1960. This is Elaine de Kooning with Joan Mitchell in 1975. And the reason I'm ending with this is because over the past five 
six years. Finally, um, the women that have been getting the credit and the publications and the biographies and the exhibitions <laughs> that they deserve. So I do want to mention several of these to you. In 2016, at the Denver Art Museum, there was a beautiful exhibition called Women of Abstract Expressionism. All these ladies were in it. The book I had hoped to read this summer, but I'm not, I haven't gotten to it. There is now the first biography of Elaine de Kooning by a woman named Kathy Curtis. It's called A Generous Vision, The Creative Life of Elaine de Kooning from 2017. Another new book that talks about all of the ladies together, it's called, by Mary Gabriel, it's called Ninth Street Women, Lee Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, Grace Hardigan, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler. Five Painters and the Movement That Changed Modern Art. That was from this year. That just came out, 2018. There is a biography of Joan Mitchell. It's by Patricia Albers. It's called Joan Mitchell, Lady Painter, 2011. Kathy Curtis, before she wrote about Lane de Kooning, she wrote the biography of Grace Hardigan. So it's called Restless Ambition, Grace Hardigan, Painter, 2015. And then Gail Levin, who we normally associate with Edward Hopper, She's written a lot on Hopper, but she wrote the first biography of Lee Krasner, and that was only as recently as 2012. So those are things you should, uh, I'm really, I, I really am looking forward to the Elaine de Kooning biography. I think that's gonna be really interesting. In any case, that's the New York School. Thanks very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 